A couple of things why we uh, why you come on back in. Uh, Pastor uh, of preaching Jason Meyer right here. Uh, your left to my left, too, I think. The preaching pastor here at Bethlehem is in a series called Life Together. So uh, if you don't have a church home and you came here via radio or friend or telegram, then you need to visit this church this weekend uh, for Pastor Meyer's series on Life Together. Uh, obviously, when we finish tonight, Eric is going to be back out in the main hall as long as he needs to be to, to meet you and sign your books. Also, this is very uncomfortable. What, what's happening? Are you making? Yes, you are. This is Pastor Jason. This is a class clown from Yale. And you know Pastor Piper. The bookstore here at Bethlehem is also available and open uh, throughout the rest of the night. Um, so, uh, again, uh, be sure and follow us. We'll direct message you on uh, those seven men books. Uh, you see the, uh, the service times both at downtown campus, north campus, and the south campus. Um, so this is going to be a lot of fun. There's already 80 to 100 questions, and we only have about three hours. So <laughs> it's Friday night, right? So um, I think that is it. Without further ado, Jason, take it away. First question, what surprised you most about Bonhoeffer? Um, well, I alluded to this in the talk. But, um, I was under the impression, as I think many people were, um, that Bonhoeffer was theologically liberal or uh, e even more importantly, at the end of his life, somehow, when he was in prison, he kind of slid off into some kind of agnostic secular humanism. Uh, and I thought, well, if that's what happened, I will, you know, do the research, and I'll just have to tell the story. I'm a Christian. I have to tell the, the truth. I don't have to like it. But uh, I was utterly shocked to discover that that was absolutely untrue and that, uh, that really for 50 years he has been, to some extent, greatly misrepresented by the Bonhoeffer scholars, m most of whom have... Uh, in some ways, either created a Bonhoeffer in their own image or have participated uh, in presenting that kind of an image um, uh, of him. It's very strange, but it was shocking to me to discover somebody who uh, w was so profoundly serious in his faith, uh, who had a high regard for scripture. And I, I just, to, to, to see that all the way to the end of his life, I was surely expecting to find something different. And at first, I didn't quite believe it. And I kept looking, looking, and then you realize that there's, there's plenty of evidence for that. It's not even that there's not that much evidence for the other point of view. There's plenty of evidence for this point of view. But, you know, because I think people kept, I think certain scholars just sort of kept that, whether intentionally or just because they, it didn't, you know, turn them on, they just avoided it. And so they gave this false impression. So I was, I was really shocked uh, and at the same time really uh, blessed to see um, what kind of faith he had. Next question. Bonhoeffer was deeply moved by the racial divide in the church. Have things changed? And how do we best address this in our local 
perish. I think you both can speak to this. Well, things have changed. It was 1930, and uh, at least I'm old enough to remember the 60s and the early 50s and the civil rights movement, and so to say that they haven't changed would be really an insult to, to the leaders of that movement. And uh, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and remember white and colored drinking fountains and white and colored restrooms and white and colored seating places in doctor's offices. And right down the line, it was as humiliating and debasing and defiling to the conscience as you can imagine. And all of that is, all of that law is gone. Racism isn't gone, and so the human heart is the same as it was then, but remarkably, things have changed. What, what I was going to say in response to that question related to that issue, namely, isn't it incredible that the Lord would take an oppressed people uh, who celebrated at the Abyssinian Church in New York and make them the instrument of an awakening of a German counter-Nazi. I mean, that's an interesting set of providences. And, and God just does that sort of thing over and over again. He makes the weak things of the world put to naught things that are. That's exactly what I was going to say. Almost word for word, it's amazing. When the Holy Spirit is operating, what can happen? I will leave it, I I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that, thank you. I, I knew you were going to say that. Do you want to say more than that? Well, I, I always want to say more. I'll say this. I, I really believe things have changed. I believe that within 30 years, uh, we will see uh, an African-American president in the United States of America. I believe it. I just believe that's going to happen. I'm sorry, I, I, I meant Republican African-American president. That's I, I apologize. Things have changed. How can someone like Bonhoeffer take matters into his own hands and try to kill Hitler when God clearly appoints the leaders, Romans 13, even when they're evil. We, we can have some fun with this one. Um, all right, I want to ask, uh, I want to throw out some questions. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about Bonhoeffer killing Hitler, first of all, Bonhoeffer was not you know, actually going to kill Hitler, but the, but the question, the larger question is, there's killing and then there's murder, right? When David kills Goliath, do we cheer? Or do we say, well, that's before David was a Christian, obviously. Uh, what, <laughs> what, do we say, what do we say to that? Um, I mean, we, we just happen to have a, a theological expert sitting next to us here. But, I, yeah, I get this kind of question all the time, and it's fascinating to me because people make no distinction. And they... But the sloppiness of people's thinking kind of depresses me because we have cops who have guns. We have a military that has weapons. Do we arm them to murder? Clearly, we don't. If they murder, we prosecute them. But they may kill. So clearly, there's a place for killing and violence. It's not a good thing. It's not, a one, it's not something we celebrate. But there's a place for it to protect the innocent. I mean, cops have guns to protect the innocent. 
and sometimes that involves killing somebody, and, you know, in war we kill. So it's, it's much more complicated than this idea that, oh, this, this man of God just decided to pull a trigger or something like that. Um, but I, I, just theologically, there's so many cases in Scripture where, um, well, we, there are two pieces here. There's one, this is the idea of killing versus murder, and then there's the idea of uh, opposing the state. I mean, when... Uh, you know, the children of Israel are told to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They don't say, oh, Romans 13, I guess I better do that. Although I know Romans 13 was not in existence at the time. But God doesn't change his mind. So it, it's almost, I guess I'm fascinated because I have Dr. John Piper here. The idea of these proof texts that we say, well, Romans 13, as if the rest of Scripture doesn't exist. I mean, there's a whole narrative uh, so to pull out these little texts and say, this is the law, this is the rule, it's not. You've got to look at the whole of Scripture, otherwise you're misrepresenting Scripture. And um, Romans 13, I think, was overemphasized in Germany because the church and the state were too cozy. Uh, and it was used to kind of, you know, H Hitler used it, really, to threaten people and say, well, you're good Lutherans, you better um, obey me personally. Um, Anyway, I don't want to say too much on that. I'm really curious about what Dr. Piper would, would say. Well, you, I think you've, you've cleared a lot of haze away and, and just now created the real problem. <laughs> That's good, okay. So there is a lot of nonsense out there that doesn't prove anything, but we really better read the text or some of it because it's really not easy. It's not easy to figure out Romans... 13, 1 to 7, um, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, that's just wild. I mean, that's a wild statement that Paul makes there. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Excuse me. Jesus said, you will be taken before kings and they will kill you. They are a terror to good conduct. Now, if you, if you don't believe the Bible, you just throw, throw, the, throw it away right now. Instead of letting it have an effect on your brain... And say, so, well, what did he mean? What did Paul mean when he said something so outlandish? He was being mistreated every other week by the ruling authorities. They weren't blessing good and, and opposing evil. They were opposing good and blessing evil. And he knew it when he wrote this. He knew it. So my take on what Paul was doing here is that when he said, for example, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, he was writing, pushing the submissive motif to the max, knowing this is going to land in Rome and be read by the Caesar. Hitler's going to read this. And the message he's going to deliver is, number one, there is a good over you, and you don't define good. And number two, Christians are not out to overthrow empires. They are some of your best citizens. Don't kill them. And if you said, but he, did he lie to say that? 
I asked my wife if there was a name for this, and uh, maybe you know a name for it. You're a lit major, right? So was I. And I, I thought it was a great major. You didn't like it. Well, it didn't work out so well for the first 25 years. You needed years a job, my... yeah. Well, you should have gone to seminary after college. I said to Noel tonight, if, if Talitha, uh, she never does this, it's imaginary, sasses you, this is my daughter, if she sasses her mom, and I say to Talitha, we don't do that in this house. She just did it. What did I mean? What, what, what did I mean? I think Paul is looking at Caesar and saying, rulers are a terror to good. Right, Caesar? Tell her, we don't do that in this house. I think Paul was using is statements to communicate ought statements, and he was doing it in a particular context to make sure that he delivered the most effective message to the, to the Caesar, as well as encouraging Christians to be generally submissive. And then you bring in all those stories. I mean, you got at least what, six civil disobedience events, two in Daniel, one with Esther, one with the, with the people in, in Exodus, one who are not killing the babies, one in Acts, which is New Testament, about we must obey God rather than men. And then you have to ask for criteria when you go after a Hitler or not, which is maybe another, another question. But one last, one last comment. I think the reason Paul was willing to risk being abused in Germany by the Reich in the misuse of this text to compel an inappropriate subordination under sin, I think the reason he was willing to risk that is because no one goes to hell for being abused by a civil government. Many people go to hell for being, getting their back up and being proud and feisty and arrogant and insubordinate and rebellious. Which means this, this text is coming down harder on breaking the speed limit and not paying taxes and letting your grass grow high behind the garage than it is on the government for having laws that they shouldn't have. Because Paul cared about your soul that's my take on would you, would you join me for the rest of the tour I think I think I could just turn to you and say just gotten you're, you're very good at this I think you're ready to go professional I think you're ready to think you're ready to make the leap I think it's going to work out uh, my goodness well that's terrific to hear that actually it's good for me good to, I don't get this kind of teaching back in New York I'm sorry uh, Tim Keller preaches a soft gospel. He won't go there. Uh, but but uh, how awful. Um, Bonhoeffer calls us to think more deeply about these things and that he, even his participation in the plot to kill Hitler was difficult for him. He didn't say, it's obvious, that, you know, some people need killing, let's go. Uh, but... Uh, he, he wrestled, 
And he even thought, I may be doing wrong, and if so, I cast myself on the, the mercy of God. But he didn't do it flippantly, joyfully. Uh, people need to know that. And if anybody has a, an itchy trigger finger, you know right then and there God is not calling you to, to use a weapon. And I think that people are just very cavalier about it. And Bonhoeffer was the antithesis of cavalier, so I'll stop there. That, um, when you said he even thought he might be wrong, you quoted, I'd never seen before, I read yours, um, a letter he wrote to a bishop or somebody in England where he was accusing him of waffling, prevaricating, and postponing decisiveness. And he said, I'm persuaded that to be decisive at this moment and be wrong is more loving than to be indecisive and be right. right. And that really landed on me because I think... Um, Many pastors are paralyzed by indecisiveness. Not, not paralyzed by fear, maybe. It may be underneath, but paralyzed by, I just don't know. I still know the way forward here. And Bonhoeffer, you would say, he probably would say, I'm not sure either. I just have to, I have to act. You can't, you got to act. You can't. To not act is to, yeah. it's your line. Well, that, that's the, well, it's his line. Uh, it's it, it, his famous line. He says, uh, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And the point is, I always think, I mean, because I'm always speaking to churches like this, and there's a, a lobby or a foyer, and I say, if somebody out there now were killing people, and somebody here had a gun, and you said, well, I, I think Scripture says I'm not supposed to kill, and so I, you know, I don't know, I'm just going to pray. And somebody continues and is killing more and more and more and more people, and you don't use the gun. At some point, you are complicit in those murders. Um, and so you can't say that there's a safe place where I'm just going to do nothing. Doing nothing is doing something. And unless we get that, uh, we think we can safely hide behind this doing nothing thing. But doing nothing is to do something. And Bonhoeffer knew this, and I think this gets to the heart of what I, I get out of Bonhoeffer, it, this idea between dead religion versus real faith in Jesus. Dead religion is fear-based, and it looks at God as somebody who just wants to whack me for making a mistake. He just hates sinners, and he's just looking for an opportunity to smack me if I make a mistake, so I'm going to do nothing because I don't ever want to make a mistake. Well, that's fear-based, and that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture loves us, and even if you make, we make a mistake, he's looking at our heart, and he wants to forgive us. And so, so this idea that I'm just, I'm paralyzed, that I don't want to make a mistake. And so I better do nothing and let all those people be killed than perhaps do something wrong. Um, God would rather that we know who he is and respond in gratitude to say, well, I, I've, I've got to do what I think the Lord would want me to do. Knowing that even if I get it wrong, he sees my heart. He sees that I was trying to please him. I was trying to do the right thing. Um, completely different gods. One is Satan and one is actually God. And Bonhoeffer, I think, was faced... There were a lot of uh, German pietists uh, at the time who literally were, were saying, Scripture says, thou shall not lie. So if the Gestapo comes to my door and says, are you hiding a Jew? Uh, as a Christian, I'm going to say, well, yes, I'm hiding a Jew. Please come and kill the Jew, you know, as if that would please God. But they're not thinking really about pleasing God. They're thinking about not making a mistake, not doing something wrong. And they would define telling a lie religiously in the same way that uh, um, when you were reading Pastor Piper, what, what, uh, uh, what Paul says, he said, well, did Paul lie? We're, we're thinking so simplistically and legalistically about what is a lie and what is truth that it, it paralyzes us. And I think that, uh, anyway, that's, um, 
<clears throat> Bonhoeffer has kind of helped me to see the difference between the two. And that he, he, he said a few times this idea that real faith has to involve action, that we pray and ask God what to do, and that we must act. Uh, and that's kind of the key. That's kind of the key. So let me test the logic of... Please, please don't do that. <laughs> the, the difference between Hitler and the abortion issue, Hitler was the architect. W with abortion, are you saying if we found the architect, then it would be okay to kill them? Well, I How think are they different? It, well, I would say that, um, again, you have to look at the whole picture. The Third Reich, I mean, how can you compare where we are today? We, we have a country where we could, like that, like just like that, elect all pro-life people, and we don't. So if that were taken away from us, if that option weren't around, but we could do that any time because this is a republic where we get to vote. We, we need to, I would say, first persuade uh, people and try to, I mean, we, we've been doing that, and you know, but, but, the, but that, that kind of thing didn't exist. They were in a war. They, ha they really had no recourse, and they knew that millions of Jews in particular were being, were being murdered, and that if they didn't do this, and by the way, at first, they wanted to have Hitler arrested, and then uh, used, there was this thing called the Zossen file that Dananyi, Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law who hired him, had been collecting from the beginning uh, of, of the Third Reich evidence of the atrocities to use in a court of law to prove to the people, look, this is what the Nazis have been doing. You didn't know. We have, we have film. We have this. We have because they, 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 they weren't going to assassinate him. They wanted to effectively say that he's insane or whatever. But, but they, they, they tried everything. And it wasn't until the 40s that they finally said, there is no other way. We've got to do this. And then there were other people. Uh, most of these folks were Christians. And at the end of my book, I, I quote them that they are held, you know, they're before Freisler's uh, court. And they're all going to be uh, tortured or executed. And a number of them made very bold statements that, uh, because of the Christian faith, that, that they, they felt that they must do something to stand against this evil. A number of them thought he was the, he was the Antichrist, certainly an Antichrist, and, and they must do something. But the, but the desperation of, of those circumstances is just infinitely uh, distant from, from where we are today. I mean, it, it would take hours to, to say how, but I would simply assert that it is dramatically different in many ways. It, it's... It's, it is dramatically different, and it's, and it's way worse in America than it was there in many ways. I would like 40 to... million. Innocent, slaughtered, cut to pieces, babies. And, and I, we, 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 in this church, tried for about three years the direct action approach, sit in front, get thrown in paddy wagons, and so on, and it, it did zero good. It backed up the cause, probably. And that is, I think, one of the parallels between our situation, say, in the Civil War. It took 600,000 dead Americans to end slavery. What will it take to end abortion, which is, as far as cost of lives, worse? And it would just depend on whether a historical flashpoint happened a historical flashpoint, because nobody could have imagined that Americans would slaughter each other over states' rights. 
Just you can imagine we would slaughter each other for years, blow each other's heads off with cannons, southerners and cousins, and just, it was just unimaginable. Just like it's unimaginable today that there could be a war over abortion. And I think the major difference is the flashpoint isn't there. How should the church respond to the current political trend to legalize gay marriage? Well, that one's easy for me. Uh, the church has been asleep on this issue. And um, for me, this is uh, more than anything an issue of religious liberty. It has, I would say it almost has nothing to do with what you think about uh, sexuality. You, you don't have to be uh, conservative evangelical Christian like I am to see that if you legally redefine marriage, uh, it will have a tremendous chilling effect in this nation when it comes to religious liberty. In other words, so, so I would say to my gay friends, look, um, if it really wouldn't affect me or religious liberty, I could see how it's possible to say you, you, you do what you like. But the point is that nobody's talking about this issue, that if this is legally redefined, it will become very difficult for Christians in America, any, anyone, anyone of faith, any, any, any Muslim, any uh, uh, Orthodox Jew, to express uh, their views on what is right and what is wrong in terms of sexuality, because it will now be uh, a legal issue. This is actually already happening. I read in the Wall Street Journal three days ago that the uh, state of California is going to try to make a law to remove the uh, tax exempt benefits from the Boy Scouts because they don't like their view on gays. So the force of the state is being brought to bear. There's a secular orthodoxy, and they're saying, unless you will toe the line here, we're going to punish you. Uh, it happened to the man who, uh, in New Jersey who founded eHarmony. Uh, the state of New Jersey said, you've got to um, provide matchups for same-sex couples as well. And if you don't do that, basically we'll run you out of business. And so he was forced to create another company to do that. And he didn't want to. He's a Christian. It's very strange. But he, he would have been run out of business if he didn't do that. So for me, that's kind of the issue. It's the issue of religious liberty. Uh, because in this country, we will countenance all kinds of things that we don't approve of. Um, but this is something that changes everything. And I really believe the church is asleep on this issue of religious liberty. And if we don't wake up to this, uh, very soon it will be uh, difficult for us to speak, um, to preach the gospel, uh, to, to teach uh, out of Scripture. It's going to be, become more difficult than it already is. I, I think we've had so much religious liberty in America that we don't even know what it is and we don't appreciate it and we don't even imagine that we could lose it. Um, but I think we're, we're, we're on the verge. We're losing it. I, I have mentioned the HHS mandate. This is another example. I think this is chilling for me. This is a line that has not been crossed before, unless I'm missing something. The idea that the government would say to people, we, don't, we do not care what you think about abortifacient drugs. We don't care. You will pay for them. Uh, and if you don't, we will find you. That's it. That, to me, is, is uh, profoundly un-American. It, it, it has nothing to do with our, our religious views. I mean, many... No. 
But um, once again, I'm curious what uh, Dr. Piper has to say about this. I'm sure he can um, add a few things. Every pastor should preach on sexuality issues, and every pastor, I think, should say there is no such thing as so-called same-sex marriage, period. It doesn't exist. It never will exist. It can't exist. It doesn't exist. And, and they should say that and, and, and show from the Bible that it cannot exist. Um, we should not only preach, we should try to encourage each other to preach and mobilize our people to tell their neighbors that and give them good arguments for why that would be destructive. You just gave some. There are dozens of arguments why the enshrining of this will be very, very damaging. Um, when the amendment was proposed here in Minnesota, I preached on it before to say that without saying go vote for the amendment. Then I sent letters to 3,000 pastors with my response to the Tribune article, which got it all wrong, and my blog and um, a letter and the sermon to try to persuade those pastors to stand up and alert their people to the seriousness of the issue. It is massive. It's massive for kids. It's massive for adoption. It's massive for schools and education. It's massive for uh, pastors. It's massive for... Uh, Probably it'll only be just a few years before there can be no evangelicals in the military chaplaincy because that will be they will be required to solemnize such non-existent yeah. so-called marriages, and so they'll just wipe them out. So I, I think we're, we're at that stage of the uh, recrimination against Christians yeah. already. Well, this is the thing, and, I, and I'll just uh, put a button on this to say that I, I'm upset to see how basically gutless so many Christians in America are. We've had everything so easy that we don't even, I mean, people are rotting in prisons and lucky to eat a rat if one scuttles by uh, around the world for their faith in Jesus. And we seem unwilling to uh, deal with the, the ugly look of a neighbor or, or, or somebody. And unless we take seriously the idea that we're going to have to pay a price. Now, it doesn't mean uh, that if you're a jerk and people call you a jerk, you know, that you're suffering for Jesus, because there are many Christians who are simply unpleasant. Uh, uh, and I'm not talking about throwing caution to the winds and being a hothead. And, but I mean to, to, to winsomely, lovingly, humbly, but boldly and courageously speak out on these kinds of things. The issue is this. I mean, uh, Chuck Colson talked about it um, in, in this idea of the spiral of silence, that this happened in Germany in the 30s, and it's happening now on this issue. The less people who speak up, the more it's difficult to speak up. Think how difficult it is to speak up on this issue. Now, you could have talked about this endlessly 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Suddenly now, something has happened. Uh, we've, we've allowed it to happen. And conversely... Anyone who speaks up makes it very easy for others to speak up. So if somebody speaks up, what happens is the people around him say, yeah, yes, I agree with that. Or at least a number of people say, yeah, yes, I agree with that, but I didn't know you could say it, but he just said it. So I guess maybe I can say it. We encourage each other. So what we say affects other people. So if you speak up, it will affect other people. If you don't speak up, it will affect other people. And uh, God's depending on us, every one of us, because we affect those around us, especially, of course, pastors, especially. But 
everyone else in any kind of leadership. Um, uh, people are affected by what they hear. And if you hear no one saying anything, most people will just say, well, I guess I'll keep my mouth shut. And we've been keeping our mouths shut, and that's how we got in this situation, that we need to speak. The, uh, behind that, that's right, behind it for years has been a view of love and a view of relationships that simply cannot harmonize being hated while I'm doing the right thing. I heard Topi, who, who's it? Was it who, who said it at the pastor's conference? Around the world, Christians fear the raised fist. In America, Christians fear the raised eyebrow. Yeah. Mac Styles. Mac. Um, what, what that means is we've, we've raised several generations of young people for whom conflict feels right-wing. It feels like Jerry Falwell all over again, whereas soft-spoken, non-offensive words feels leftish and cool. And, and you just don't want to sound like those feisty fighters for the right. And that's Republican, that's right-wing, that's weird, and we want to be with the cool. We want to be cool. And so you don't, you don't get the right... A raised eyebrow is just, oh, I've just got a raised eyebrow. I, I want to be cool. I don't want to sound like anybody who's right wing. And so there's, there's a new kind of fear that's there. And it's not so much about the so-called gay marriage. It's just about homosexuality in general or about abortion in general or about debt in general or about the HHA thing in general. It's just, it's just you don't want to, at the office where everybody's cool, say anything that's going to make you look like a fool, an absolute fool. And so I, I think we've just blown it when it comes to portraying biblical courage and biblical love and Jesus said, I read it day before yesterday, so unbelievably relevant for this and for message that I'm going to do this weekend, where, where he said, a little different than Matthew, Luke 6, I forget the verse, where he said, blessed are you when men hate you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. I thought, could it be said any more relevantly? And then he added, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Like, where is anybody who leaps for joy? I'm hated. I'm, I'm, my name was just cast out as evil, which is what happens if you name sin, sin today. You're not called like you used to be, the raised eyebrow and oh poor you benighted evangelical. Right. Right. Rather, you are wicked. Yeah. You are wicked to, to say that what this loving couple is doing is sin. That is wicked of you. And, and I'll tell you, we just don't have the inner strength to say, I'm, I'm not wicked and you can call me that. I'm going to keep coming back. It's a new day of, of need for inner power and strength that can receive that without becoming ugly and embittered. Right. And doesn't that come from the gospel where you don't have to have an identity from what people think of you, but you can have an identity that really only matters what God says. And that, isn't that where the inner strength comes from? To I not would, be gutless. Yes, 
Yes, it does. And, and, and everything around the core gospel of you are forgiven and you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, on the basis of Christ alone. And then all around that is a lifestyle in story after story in the Bible where love looks different than most people think about it today. The only thing I would add to that is that humans being as we are, we need models because uh, it's one thing to, to know that, but you need to see it modeled and you need to be around people who are modeling it and living it because I would say most people, except for rare leaders, respond to that. They look and say, well, my father said that or my, my hero, my sports hero said that or my pastor said that. And it sort of gives you strength to say, yes, I think I can do that. But when you don't have models of this and the culture is devoid of models of this, this is my... Uh, passion is this idea that our culture is uh, sort of secular humanist liberal. If you turn on the TV, you will see no examples. Now think in a country like America, where quite a few people, millions of people think this way, you'll never see it portrayed in the mainstream media. Why is that? It ought to be a mirror. It is not a mirror. It's not a cultural democracy. Uh, the invisible hand of the market is not providing uh, images or stories of people like this. It ought to, but it, but it doesn't because it's more complicated than that. And, and so uh, we need as Christians to be aware of this issue, that especially leaders, um, uh, people are looking at you. And if they see you behaving in this way, looking at God and obeying God and behaving in this way, then they say, okay, I, I've seen that, I can do it. It's rarely seen uh, in this culture. John, you talked about Sermon on the Mount a bit. Next question is a good segue. I've read the Sermon on the Mount had a huge impact on Bonhoeffer and the cost of discipleship. How could you speak to that? Well, Bonhoeffer was very affected by um, a, a, a Frenchman, Jean Lasserre, who was one of his students at Union. Uh, and Jean Lasserre, I think, uh, helped Bonhoeffer see... To, to some extent, the, the, the radicalness of Scripture, that we're really supposed to live this way. As I was saying before, it's not extra credit, that this is real. And um, so Bonhoeffer was trying to figure out that. And in, in a way, this um, seminary uh, in 1935 and onward that he was leading, it was a community like that. He said, we're going to take living in Christian community seriously. The most radical thing, this is mentioned in Life Together, is where he says while you're here at Finkenwalde, you can never talk about one of the brothers when he's not present. And I thought, wow, uh, to live like that, to not talk about my friend with my other friend if the friend is not there. Talk about a spiritual discipline to say, I will not do that because I will speak differently if the, if the person is there. Uh, Bonhoeffer really wanted to live this out, uh, and it really was, um, it, it was just central uh, to him, there's a lot to be said on that, but that's all I'll say for now. This is for um, John. Ask Eric a question, and then Eric, ask John a question. <laughs> you get to go first? Yeah. I was going to ask you what's capital of South Dakota. Don't do that. <laughs> in, in, your, in your talk... Um, it's Pierre, by the way. <laughs> He's from South Pierre, Dakota. Pierre, okay. 
I would not have known that. This is just the kind of just just kind of thinking we're looking for in this establishment. We should get a hold of this guy. We should get a hold of this guy. It's kind of bright young thinkers like this. To make room in the hard drive. Yeah. You, you referred to uh, the Nazis co-opting the church and shaping it into their image, and you just dropped the line, which of course is happening today in America. And I wrote down on my notes, please illustrate. Did I really say that? You did. <laughs> I have no recollection of that. You the, read the quote. No, you don't have to read it. I actually Not do remember it. <laughs> Uh, he was, he was going to read that. Think about that. Um, well, um, my wife and I attend an Episcopal church in Manhattan. Uh, it's an evangelical Episcopal church, but technically it's still an Episcopal church. We can argue about uh, that another time, but the idea that, uh, that denomination and a number of other denominations would continue to, that the leaders would, would continue to call themselves Christian, but they, they want to change things on the inside. I mean, the, the, the gay issues, the, the classic uh, illustration. And you, you wonder, um, what is it that makes them want to um, stay within this institution and change it? It's very interesting to me, this idea that they... Um, they want to fight from the inside, but, but completely change it. This has been happening all through the mainline uh, Protestant denominations. I mean, I, it's a joke to me. I mean, I, I cannot take seriously any of the, the mainline Protestant denominations. I mean, to me, all I care about is, you know, is it an evangelical church? Whether it, And I would go so far as to say that to, uh, to Catholics, to Eastern Orthodox. I mean, the denomination, it becomes meaningless because, um, you know, I can hear preaching and I can, I can know what's going on in that church. But the, the, the denominations themselves, um, they're, they're off the rails. They're, they're just crazy. And uh, it is horrifying. Um, but uh, they, um, I mean, this is happening for, it's been happening for years, but I think it's most dramatic more recently because of the sexuality issue. I mean, to take that final step um, you simply wonder what they're thinking. So that's very helpful. So what you meant was that um, instead of Christians s departing from faith and leaving Christianity, yeah. you depart from faith, say you're Nazi, you don't want to lose the church, it's a good right. front, yeah. and you just rework things. Jews have to go, yeah. and certain kinds of statements have to go, but yeah. church is still there, the name's still there, and you're saying that same mentality is keep, keep the institution, it's, it's useful, we've got our jobs here, yeah. and, and, uh, and yet you just you gut it from all that it was. You just was. remake it in your own image, and I, and I think the, you know, it sort of proves that those folks don't have real faith, because if they really understood it, they wouldn't do that, but they really think it's, it's something malleable. They can, they can mess with it, they can do what they like, and they're doing the best they can, and... Uh, they, they, don't, they don't see what they're doing, um, and they don't, yeah, they, they would never say, well, you know, I just don't believe any of this stuff, so I'm going to form another denomination. They, they, they somehow want to uh, take over the denomination. Um, I, I just don't, you know, if you don't believe um, in the fundamentals, if you don't believe in, in uh, you know, the Nicene Creed, if you don't believe in, the, in the, the bodily resurrection, if you, don't believe, if you don't believe those things, 
I simply wonder, what, why are you bothering with any of it? I don't get it. It's too much trouble. Stay home on Sunday, you know. Um, but they seem to bother about it. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm fascinated uh, why anyone would do that, but uh, they do it. Pardon? Oh, by the way, there's no shouting here. Thank you. <laughs> is, that, is that a book? Is there a book in that idea? I don't think so, but anyway. Uh, oh, I have to ask you a question. Was capital of North Dakota? Uh, the reason I, I actually say what's capital of North Dakota is because Groucho uh, was once uh, invited to a seance. And uh, he, uh, they said, now, Groucho, this is real. These people are doing this. this is, they're very serious about this, so you can't be joking around. He goes, no, no, I get it, I get it, I get it. So he goes to the seance, and the, the woman running the seance says... Um, uh, to the spirits, you know, the spirits are here, the spirits are here, and then she says, does anyone have, a, does anyone have anything they want to ask the spirits? Does anyone have anything they want to ask the spirits? Does anybody have a question for the spirits? And, and Groucho says, I got a question, what's capital of North Dakota? And it just has stuck with me as a, as a good question to ask. But uh, I won't ask it, uh, I won't ask it tonight. Uh, I don't, uh, I wasn't prepared for this, so I don't, I don't have any serious questions. On that note, we're ready to wrap up. I'm going to call Doug Hudson up. Uh, guys, thank you very, very much. Um, thank you. Stay here, stay here, stay here. You know what? I'm going to ask a favor. I'm going to go, uh, speaking of off the rails here for just a second, um, I'm going to ask uh, Jason to, um, I, I hope, one of the things I want you to hear very quickly is all three of these men, uh, certainly uh, Eric and John, a lot of people know who they are, understand them. I hope you know that the Holy Spirit in them is in all of us. And I want to ask Jason to pray for these two men for their courage and also for all of us in the room, that somehow as Eric has brought to life this Bonhoeffer, how it impacts us. And so Jason, if you would pray with them, and then I'll grab Eric very quickly, and Eric and I will walk straight back. So he will be there, ready to see you. But Jason, will you close and pray for these men and for all of us to be examples? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there are models that you've given us, people like Bonhoeffer, people like the Apostle Paul, people like Eric and John. I do pray, Lord, for their ministries. I pray that your hand would remain on them, that the power of the Holy Spirit would be very tangibly evident, that their ministries would be fruitful that their hearts would be guarded from pride and that they would give themselves to die to the smiles and frowns of man and live for your smile alone. I do pray, Father, thanking you that the, the risen Christ, the risen Christ that Bonhoeffer served, that led him to be radical and count the cost of discipleship, 
I pray that that risen Christ today, by the power of the Spirit, the same power that raised him up from the dead, would be at work in all believers powerfully, that we would, Lord, not fail to speak and therefore be speaking. Pray that we would not fail to act and therefore be acting. Pray for a measure of grace and faith and love and hope that we might be the blood-bought children of the living God that you've called us to be and that Jesus would receive all glory and honor in his church. Thank you for this evening, and I pray, Lord, that your blessing would be upon us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.